tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the second chapter of the Bible. The promise of death, separation from God, upon disobedience and rebellion against him. Death, gray-faced, cold death. This reality is coming. Physical death is inevitable for every human creature. I remember when this first struck me. I was five years old in my house, about 15 minutes northwest of here where I grew up, getting ready for bed. And suddenly, what? I'm going to die. Five-year-old boy, and I, I don't know where the thought came from, but I suddenly realized I wasn't going to last forever. It was going to come to an end. Death was coming, and there was nothing I could do about it. I would live a certain number of days. I could count them out even, if I could count that high. But I would die, and they would put me in the ground, and I would be no more. At that point, I didn't know what to think about death. I didn't know what would come after. I didn't know if we'd go up to some cosmic mind or if we just cease to exist. I had no idea at that point what it would be. I had some vague notion of the fact that there might be a God, but even as a five-year-old, that kind of scared me. I wasn't sure what to think. Death was coming. My mom couldn't save me from it. My dad couldn't. No one who loved me. We were helpless, all of us. Death is coming to each of us in this room unless Christ comes back first. But death is coming. It's not only coming, as we live in a world filled with sin and death, death is already here in our very hearts and souls. Come meet with me for a moment, a young teenage girl. Maybe you know a girl like her. She found a, a young man, an older young man, and he took a lot of interest in her. And she was so flattered, excited at this promise of love, excited that someone older and so important and so amazing loved her somehow, was interested in her. Well, as the story goes, she gave herself to him. Way too much. And he took advantage of her. Way too much. And what was the result? She felt dirty, used, ashamed the moment he left her, as if she, she was just some piece of trash to be used and wiped the smut of sin and selfishness, using her and throwing her in the trash. Everyone warned her of this? but she didn't know how to listen. What would happen? She was used, she, she didn't know where to turn, she didn't know how to heal the hurt in her soul. A year or so later, her mother saw marks on her body where she had been cutting herself, 
trying to do something, but the pain inside, this death, just broils up in her. She didn't know how to deal with it. Death was with her even as she lived. Rebellion, she was lashing out at everyone. Death even while we're alive. A common experience among men who know the death that happened in the Garden of Eden at the beginning. Or maybe a middle-aged man, meet him with me. I'm sure he's a little bit older than all of us. But this middle-aged man has been in the same job for 10 years. He's been working diligently at a decent job, going in day after day, hour after hour, the same routine. He knows how to do it, he does it well, but he feels dead. Just hopelessness, this daily doldrum of death in his life. He wants something more, he doesn't know what it is. He has a decent family he goes home to every night. But that doesn't fill his soul either. What will spark something real in his life? He has a crisis. And many men who have this sort of crisis will go and they'll try to find that flicker of a romance that lasts for a moment and then leaves you colder than when you began. Some men will try to go find some uh, new job or something that will make them feel like life is more than just decent death. But no matter which way they turn, all these promises turn out to be lies. Death is with us. Physical death spiritual death. Is there a promise that will not lie to us? Is there hope for us? Is there something that we can cling to that will give us life in the daily death that we live? Yes, there is a promise. His name is Jesus Christ. And that name, though it's been thrown around by heretics, and hypocrites, though it's a daily word used as a byword and a curse word, there is meaning that is rich and deep, and it is the only source of life in this dead world. Jesus Christ is life. He went to the grave, and he defeated it. We have hope in the promise of Jesus Christ and his overcoming the grave on our behalf. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Acts chapter 13. And we're going to first look at the history of the promise in the middle of a sermon that Paul the Apostle is preaching in the book of Acts. And so we're going to look at the history of the promise, culminating in a future King David-like person by the name of Jesus Christ who would defeat sin and death. Second, I want to talk about the proclamation of the promise at the climax of Paul's sermon in Acts. The proclamation of the promise that this is the one. Don't look anywhere else. Jesus Christ is the one and only. Don't treat him lightly. Treat him as the only way. The proclamation of the promise. And third, I want to look at the perfection of this promise, the completion of it, how it meets every need. It is the way out of our daily experience of death and that final experience of death. He has the promise and he has perfected it with power in the resurrection from the dead.
And then I want to finally conclude by looking at what does this mean to us in our daily bouts with death, bouts with meaninglessness? What does this mean to us in our pain and sorrow and suffering? That's where I want to end with because it is the most important thing that we can hear. This is the most important story, the story of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. So turn with me to Acts chapter 13, and we're going to start before our sermon text at verse 16. This is on page 921 of your pew Bible, if you want to look at that. Here we're going to meet Paul on his first missionary journey. He's come from just north of where Jesus did most of his ministry in Antioch of Syria. And then he goes over to Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean. Then he goes north. He hits ground. And then he goes about halfway through to the top of uh, modern-day Turkey. So he's about the middle of modern-day Turkey. And it's there that he gets to the city of Antioch in Pisidia. And he goes to a synagogue, as was his practice, to take this gospel, this message of salvation, to the Jews first. And here we get a beautiful picture of something that we rarely get a glimpse into. What was a sermon of Paul really like? This is the only full recorded sermon of Paul to a synagogue. It's a beautiful glimpse. This is one of those things that if it wasn't there, I would be waiting my whole life saying, oh, if I could just hear one of Paul's sermons. So this is an amazing place to look at what Jesus has done for us. Let's briefly overview what Paul is saying in Acts 13, verses 16 and following. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to hit some highlights so that you can see the words on the page as we go. Just keep up with me. Paul is telling the story of what God has been doing in the world and that will eventually culminate in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. First of all, God begins with choosing a people for himself in verse 17 and then rescuing them from captivity from the land of Egypt. The Israelites, after they were rescued, wanted to go back to slavery. This is a big issue for us. Human beings, when rescued from death, seem to not understand how to escape from its gravity. We tend to always fall right back into the same old patterns of slavery and death and dying. So we always need this fresh proclamation every Sunday, every day, what God has done for us. After that, it's just a list of what God has given to these sinful people who are always turning back. He gave them their land as an inheritance. He gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. They asked for a king, even though it wasn't the best idea. God gave them one. God gave them Saul. And then, finally, God removes King Saul. And God sets up King David. David is the climax of Paul's Old Testament story of what God has given throughout history. David is a picture of the Christ who is to come. And this is shown by the fact that once Paul gets to David, he skips forward a thousand years. Before that, it's just been peace here, peace here, along the way, and then suddenly a thousand years into the future, he skips to Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist, who is proclaiming that Jesus Christ is coming, the new and true Davidic king, the one who is so much better than that David in Old Testament, so much more amazing and has so much more for us. And then we have verses 26 through 31, which we don't want to skip over lightly. This is the message of salvation. We see that phrase in verse 26, the message of salvation. This is the promise. This is how we get out of death. The message of salvation is that Jesus Christ, according to everything prophesied in the Old Testament, exactly as it said, he was put to death. 
He was put to death on a cross. He was buried. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave, defeating death, defeating sin, defeating its hold over us. So Paul, now that we know the outline of the sermon so far, is going on to show from the Old Testament, Old Testament quotations, how these ancient promises were fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we just went through the history of the promise, and now we're in the second point, the proclamation of the promise. Now we're going to look back at Acts 13, verse 32. This is the meat of our sermon text right here. Paul's sermon text and mine, I guess. Acts 13, 32 through 42. Let's read this together. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled. The promise has been fulfilled. To us, their children, by raising Jesus. So also it is written in the second psalm. This is Psalm 2-7 he's quoting. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and laid with his fathers, and he saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. An incredibly important story with an incredibly important climax, and the people who went away from that synagogue were begging that more could be told about this great salvation that had come to them. Good news, in verse 32 through 33. Good news, what God promised has been fulfilled. Death has been defeated. Sin is no more. Christ has risen. Defeating death in the grave. Paul refers us then to three Old Testament promises, beginning with the second psalm. And I want to look at that. So right here it says, in verse 33, he fulfilled to us their children all these things by raising Jesus. So also is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Uh, what? A lot of us might be kind of wondering exactly how this math works. So Jesus was raised, and then there's a quotation, today you are my son equals how? How does this work? You know, how do we know that this is the Messiah because of this quotation and the fact that Jesus was raised from the grave? Well, we need some insider information, something that everybody in that synagogue was fully aware of, I'm sure. The insider information 
Well, you've probably all been like me on multiple occasions where you're in a room with people and now all the conversation seems to be going well, it's congenial, you're getting along, you're connecting, and then suddenly somebody uses a word or a phrase that causes everybody else in the room but you to start laughing. It's like, oh, am I crazy? Did I miss something? Is my mind not quite clicking here? You, you've missed out on an inside joke. They all had information that you didn't have. So we're going to look at some insider information from 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is where the promises are birthed from. So turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 7 with me. That'll be in your pew Bible and page 259. In 2 Samuel 7, we see the foundation for why David is so important. This is the Davidic covenant. This is one of those chapters in the Bible that if you're looking for a who's who of great chapters in the Bible, this is one you should know. So all of you Bible geeks who are ready to know all the great important chapters with me, let's remember 2 Samuel 7 is where we find God's covenant with King David that makes him so important. Okay? 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. Let's read this. God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David is told first that he's going to die. God says, David, you're going to die. But it's not over there. There's coming one of your great, 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 great grandchildren somewhere down the line who will not die. He will live forever. He is going to reign forever. It's hard to reign forever if you're dead, by the way. So this means that if you're going to reign forever, you have to stay alive. You have to stay on the throne. You have to have, have life in you in order to reign. So this, this future king is going to reign forever. He will not die. He will reign. Then it says, this is important in verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This should remind us of Psalm 2-7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He shall be to me a son. God doesn't throw this language around lightly. What does he mean by this? He means two things, primarily for our purposes. First, it means that this is going to be a Messiah figure. The Son of God is important. You don't just have a bunch of son of, sons of God running around in the Old Testament. This is one particular person who is called a Son of God. And he is to be the Savior of God's people, a mediator to them, a, a future messianic king is coming. Secondly, this strongly implies that this guy is going to be divine. This is not going to be an ordinary man. This is going to be the God-man who will reign on the throne forever. So this is important language in 2 Samuel 7. And then I want to skip down to uh, verse 16, where it says, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Notice forever is emphasized a lot. Eternal life, forever life, a forever king who will reign as a Messiah, a savior to his people. See, David is a prototype. He's a shadowy image 
of what's coming. David's life as a man after God's own heart is it's a picture. I, I don't know if you guys have ever told your kids that, hey, we're, we're, we're going to go somewhere. Maybe we're going to go to Six Flags. And they get really excited. And so they start you know, drawing pictures and, and talking about how this, this future day is going to look. They've never been there before, but they start drawing these great big lines across the page that kind of look like mountains, but you know that they should probably be roller coasters. And there's these pictures of, of boats that look like frogs and water that's green or purple or something, and it just doesn't quite look like the full reality of it. It's, but it's an image, and you get it. This is kind of what David is in the Old Testament as a picture of the coming Christ. David sinned. Future Jesus Christ would not sin. David was a man after God's own heart, but he stumbled in major ways. Jesus Christ would defeat every temptation. David died. Jesus Christ would not. So David is a shadowy picture of the reality that is found in Christ. So, now that we've seen the foundation, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we see who David is as this great promise of a future king, this promise made to David about his future offspring who will sit on a throne forever and rule forever. We've seen that 2 Samuel 7 foundation. Now let's look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2, uh, page 448 in the Pew Bible. This is a psalm spoken by David. This is important. David, the guy who the promises were made, is speaking this psalm. In Psalm 2, at the beginning, we heard this uh, from Brett earlier as he opened the service with it. As it begins, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew for anointed. Christ is Greek for anointed. This is what it means. Christ, Messiah, anointed one, all the same thing. So they're setting their sights against this anointed one and God, the king. They don't want him. They're trying to throw off the yoke. They don't want his authority over him. I don't know if you guys have felt this in your souls, but I tend to, as a sinful human being, try to cast off all authority. You try to tell me what to do, and there's something in my heart that says, I don't like that. I want to do it my way. And this is most important when we're talking about the God who we're rebelling against. That's where sin is so horrid against the one who is everything good. Does this bother God? No. In verse 4, he's sitting in heaven looking at the raging nations and laughing. You think you can defeat my king? You can rage all you want, but you're never going to take my king down. He will reign, and as a matter of fact, I'm going to give him the entire earth, and you can't do anything about it. Rage some more, nations. Go for it. God is confident in what is happening. He is confident in his plan. He knows that his promise will be fulfilled, that Jesus Christ will come and he will reign forever. So in verse 7, right in the middle... We see that decree. David tells of this decree. And in Psalm 2, it's David that's being raged against, the anointed king of Israel at that time. And so when, when David says this decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. David is remembering the promises 
of 2 Samuel chapter 7, that foundation. Psalm 2, he's remembering, nations are raging against me, God. What does this mean? Am I just going to be defeated? Is, is your plan done? It looks like they're going to take me out. And then he remembers, God said, I will establish your throne forever. You are my son, special relationship to me. And your offspring will reign forever. I've set you up. No one will take you down. You are secure. So David, this is, this is giving him great security in the midst of all of the trouble of nations that are raging against him. The same thing happened to King Jesus. As he came into the world, nations raged, peoples plotted, and he was eventually put to death on a cross for the sins of the world, though he was innocent himself. But he stood secure because... God would not let them ultimately win. The powers of darkness would not prevail. The Son of God would rise from the grave, and then the declaration is not just a promise, it is fulfilled. David was leaning on the promise that God would be on his side no matter how the nations rage. Jesus Christ was raised from the grave, never to see defeat in any way ever again. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the son of God, the Messiah, the anointed one, the defeater of the nations, the promises made full and complete in Jesus Christ. Today I have begotten you. You have been raised from the grave. The last enemy is defeated. You've won. This is the promise that David is pointing to. Insider information makes such a big, big difference, doesn't it? So now we've seen the proclamation of the promise. The resurrection, God is proclaiming, this is my forever king. He doesn't die. So that was the proclamation of the promise. Now we're going to look forward to the perfection of the promise. I'm going to read Acts 13, 34 through 39 again. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he is spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he died, served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Sounds like 2 Samuel 7, doesn't it? Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Okay. This first quote... I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. It's from Isaiah 55.3. We're not going to turn there. I just want to make one point that goes together with the next quote. The point is that this promise is for you. In Isaiah 55.3, this was a promise spoken to the people of Israel, to God's people. And so this is for all who would trust in Christ. For all of those who are true spiritual Israel, who found their faith and that one true Israelite, Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man who defeated death. So this promise is for you who believe. 
That's what these promises are for. The sure and holy blessings of David, we share in them. Romans 8.17 says that we are heirs of Christ. We partake in the blessings of Christ. What he has won, we share in. The spoils of his victory, we get to partake. So these blessings are for you, for us who believe. Okay, what are the blessings of David? Let's look at the next quote. The next quote is from Psalm 1610, and you might want to go ahead and turn there on page 454 of the Pew Bible. Psalm 16, and we're going to read 9 through 10. This is a beautiful, amazing psalm, one of my favorite. Actually, we'll go through verse 11. Peter quotes this, this uh, Psalm 1610 in Acts earlier on, in Acts 225 and following. And then Paul quotes it uh, here. And they both use the exact same argument. The argument goes, well, here's the quote. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. But David died and saw corruption. These promises were made to him. So David is not the one we're looking for. Maybe he's a picture, but he's not the final result. Jesus Christ did not see corruption. He went to the grave, but he rose again, never to be corrupted and never again to die. This is a different resurrection from anyone else we've ever seen in history. The widow's uh, son was resurrected by Elijah. The John 11, we have Lazarus being raised. They were raised for a time, and they lived for a time, but they died again. Jesus Christ is different. His resurrection is different. He raises from the dead, and he never dies. He ascends to heaven, and he sits at the right hand in the throne of God forever. So he is perfectly raised, and he will never see corruption. David saw it. So what does this say about uh, your holy one will not see corruption? It means Jesus is the one. The resurrection proves it. He is the one. The resurrection life, when seen in the context of Psalm 16, 9 through 11, is much more than just being raised from the dead bodily. So much more than that. That's why I think that this is such a rich passage that I want to explore. Let's read it together. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So my heart is glad, my whole being, oh, and by the way, my body dwells secure. I don't have to face death in my heart, my whole being, my body, anything. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. There's our quote. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what does this life look like? Not just getting our body back. If we just got our body back and lived forever, many of us would wish that weren't the case. We would wish that death would come to us. It's been a thousand years, still on the same job. Ow. Why am I still alive? But eternal life, the life that God gives us in Jesus Christ, is so much more because it's fullness of joy in the presence of God. It's pleasures forevermore at his right hand. Joy of heart, of our soul being. This is everything. 
And he is giving us life now and forever. That's what makes the resurrection so amazing is that we get to not only live again, but we get to live in joy and life with God, the giver of every good and perfect gift. We get to be with him. And the pleasures will just increase for eternity. This is true life. Life that is truly life. It's here in Jesus Christ. We don't have to see corruption after death forever. We will be raised again. But even now, the corruption that is eating our hearts and souls away because of sin. It's being replaced. It's being subverted. There's a life that is working within us that will change us from the inside out. Give us joy in the midst of tragedies. Finally, let's look at Acts 13, 38 through 39. In this portion, it says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins, this point one, is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not have been freed by the law of Moses. So not only do we have bodily life in Christ, but we have forgiveness of sins. Sins are the cause of death. If sins are the cause of death and Christ has defeated the results that it, death itself, then there is nothing that Christ cannot conquer in your life and forgive you of. Think of the entire history of this depraved world and all of the people who have gone before us, dictators, men who wreaked genocide in the world, Hitler, Stalin, Chavez. Let's look around us and all the people that were killed and murdered and all the murderers who were behind it. Their sin is not more powerful than the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's conquered death. He has conquered those sins. If you think you have a sin that he cannot forgive, you don't know the power of the Lord of armies, the God of hosts, who has come to the grave, faced it head on, and said, I win. And you will not take an inch back. It's mine. Trust him. He's able to forgive everything. Everything. The second part of this, there's two words in verse 39. Uh, freed is said twice. I want you to take your pencil and mark over freed and write justified above that. I don't know why they translate this freed. So much better is justified. It's the same word, dikaio, that is found in so many other places and it's translated justified. And that's the real meaning here. We're made righteous. We're given righteous life. We're made righteous by Jesus Christ. This is something that the law could not do for us. We're made righteous, clean, holy, just. It's in our spiritual bank account that we have the very righteousness of Christ. Could the law of Moses do that? No. Killing an animal can't do that. Following a few rules, but never following all of them because we're sinful and our hearts hate the rules, that will never do it for us. The law of Moses could not cleanse our hearts, could not put spiritual righteousness and infinite righteousness, the very righteousness of God in our spiritual bank account. The law of Moses couldn't do that. 
Christ has done that. And that spiritual righteousness that he has put in our account is just conquering areas of our hearts every day. He's cleansing us. He's changing our desires. He's making us have righteous desires, not unrighteous desires. He's making us want life and the deeds of life, the very paths of life, Jesus Christ himself, our God who is the living God. And we don't want those dead works anymore. And so now we are justified. We're made righteous. We're made clean. Moses couldn't do it, but Christ the conqueror can and has. So what does this mean for us? We're at our conclusion. What does Jesus' incorruptible life, justification for us, forgiveness of sins, defeating the grave and sin itself, death in this life and death in the hereafter are defeated? What does it mean for us? Well, it means, first of all, that we have spiritual death in our hearts conquered. What does that look like for me tomorrow morning? Well, we can recognize now that our hearts are being changed and that we can recognize the evil despicableness of sin and the deeds of death. We don't want them anymore. Has sin ever satisfied the soul of man? No. Name your sin. Go through a list of them. Think of sexual immorality. Think of Lying, cheating, stealing, uh, tax evasion, profiteering, all of the things that all of the men in the Bible have done. We've seen it all. No sin is new. Does any of our rebellion ever satisfy us? No. Does substance abuse satisfy us? No. We're living for the next hit. We're living for a flicker of life. Maybe something that will make us feel real again, give us some excitement. But then it leaves us dry and dead and cold. And our soul aches as we lay down in our bed at night, wanting something real, feeling lonely, feeling like we're missing something. I've never met a drug abuser, a drug addict, who after three or four years of his addiction hasn't desperately wanted something else. It does not satisfy. Only true life satisfies. Sexual immorality, is it satisfied? No. Flicks of illicit romance are all front-loaded. You get this excitement at the beginning, and then heartache, despair, loneliness, an aching, gut-wrenching soul in the end. God created us to be one man, one woman for one lifetime. This is the path of life. This is something that reflects Jesus' own love for his church, a husband's love for his wife, and so when we follow this path of life, we're following Jesus Christ, who is life, and we see soul satisfaction. There's trouble along the way. I don't know a single marriage where there hasn't been strife, argument, something, at least after they say I do for a few minutes. You know, there, there's this period of time maybe, but there's always an argument. But this is the path of life. This is where we find fulfillment because we're learning who God is. We're looking for him in day-to-day -day life, and we're seeing him in the realities of what he designed us for, to glorify him, the God and giver of life. Okay? So, we know that there's paths of life that we need to follow. But maybe you go to work in the morning, and maybe that work kind of looks like the picture of that middle-aged man we talked about earlier. And maybe as you go, you're just like, oh. I can't believe I have to go back in the morning. There has to be something different for me. 
Well, how do we conquer that? We walk with him. He's purchased us to be with him, to be with life himself. What does that look like? Well, let's take an example. Psalm 19 says that the skies above us are declaring the glory of God. If we are ignoring him, if we're not taking advantage of his presence, if he's not with us, the God of life isn't giving us eyes to see, we can walk out of our house and we can just be in a busy schedule and just not thinking about God or anything and look up at the sky and go, it's nothing. But if we walk with the very presence of God who has conquered death in our hearts now and forever, and he has given us living eyes, we can look up and, whoa, glory, he's here. God is filling everything in life, the skies, my day-to-day chores, how I walk, how I live, how I breathe. He's all around me, and he gives life to everything I do. It's like going to work with your best friend who is also the creator of the entire universe and upholds everything and controls every aspect of everything. As Gary says, you can never make a human plan and expect it to succeed because God is the one in control. We can trust that what he's doing around us, we can look with living eyes, get on board with him, live for him and with him, and suddenly even the tragedies of life, they're not as bad because we have a friend who is closer than a brother. We have the living God walking with us. We have a comforter. And we have a hope that one day, all of those pains will go away. Every tear will be wiped from every eye. All the sorrows will fade to nothing. And we will be with our God forever in paradise. And he's drawing us there. He's not just letting us walk through this life. He's pulling us towards that vision of hope. He's bringing us along to life. And he will accomplish it because he has accomplished it. We have perfect hope, a perfect promise. And we know it has been fulfilled because Christ has already been raised from the dead. A historical fact. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week with Wes. The proof of the resurrection. It's real real. As we go, we should remind one another of these things. We should proclaim it to the world, to Christians, to non-Christians. This is the only hope for getting out of the despair of life, the death while we are still living, to have it conquered by the God who lives. Let's conclude by reading Acts 13, verses 40 through 42, the end of the sermon. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. And as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. If you have not put your life trustingly in the hands of Christ. If you are walking in the deathly doldrums of daily sin, if you can't feel the hope of Christ welling up in your soul because you have not placed yourself in his hands, you're not following him as your your king, you're not saying, what is the next benchmark on the path of life for me? How do I grow closer to you? If you haven't started that journey by trusting him, that he is able to make you alive, to make life 
worth living. Don't scoff. Don't delay. This is the only promise that the world has ever received that will satisfy the demands of the death that lives in you and the death that will take you at the end of this life. There is no other way out. It is the promise, the only one, Jesus Christ. Trust in the man who has conquered sin and death, the man who is God himself, the man who sits on a throne now reigning over everything. Trust him. And if you want to know more of what that looks like, don't hesitate. We're going to sing a song after this, a couple songs. We're going to have some announcements and prayer. As soon as the service is over, talk to the person next to you who is a member of this church. Talk to elders. Uh, I myself will be up here as well. Talk to us up here. We'll be in the front. Find someone who can share with you how do you go to the next steps on this path of life. Christians, don't neglect the life that you have. Don't ignore it. Seek it. Hold on to it as if it's everything to you because guess what? It is everything to you. A mom homeschooling, finding the day-to-day -day routine, his life is what makes homeschooling worthwhile. His life is what makes it worthwhile to see your kids light up as they finally understand something new about God, something new about his world. Day-to-day -day life at work, as you look at ledger sheets and you see how God is working the universe around you and your office even, and as you proclaim his life to the people around you, that's what makes life worth living. Grab on to the life that is truly life. Don't let it go. He's won it for you. Hold on to it. Seek it. Seek him. And he will draw near to you. Let's pray. Most holy God, Thank you that you have offered a serious solution to a deathly serious problem. Thank you that Christ has gone to the cross for us to bear the punishment for our sins and that he went to the grave but it could not hold him. Thank you that he has risen from the dead. Thank you that you have given us life. I pray that your life would well up in us as a church here at Redeemer. I pray that your life would be so transforming that joy and the pleasures of our God would just exude from our very being. Heal all of the hurts in this room, the feelings of soul death, as if something's not worthwhile or something's not right. Heal that. Bring your life into our souls and heal us in every hidden place. And let us experience the life that is truly life, the joy with you today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.